Kenya team, thank you for sharing that. I love to hear how God is working. Yes, you may clap. That's that good. I and a, and a group of worship arts folks are getting ready to head to North Africa next year in April, and we're grateful for Faith Promise to partner with us as we go minister to some of the folks that we partner with over in that region of the world. A couple things before we get going. Number one, um, if you have a child who is pre-K or younger, we do have... Um, a, uh, a child uh, Sunday school kind of time right now. It's not Sunday school, that's next hour, but child um, ministry time right now that you can take them to right this moment. It is out the doors down to the left, and there's a child check-in station there. If you'd like to do that, now is a great time. That's number one. Number two, <clears throat> kids, if you uh, came in this morning, which I hope you did because you're in here, uh, you, hopefully you received a green sermon notes card. I absolutely love, love, love seeing these during the week. Some of you have even attempted to write Greek, like the actual Greek letters, and have done a better job than I ever have. So nice job with that. And I love hearing how God is teaching you uh, about his word and about his truth. So the two words for today that I want you to kind of keep a tally on are these. Know and rejoice. Okay, know and rejoice. And it can be knowing or it can be rejoicing. It can be all forms of that word. Okay, know and rejoice. And then um, next week, I just wanted to, to say again, we really hope that you'll be back with us next week as we learn more about the partnerships that we have with these domestic, these local organizations that seek to further the gospel by serving people. And so I'm excited for what we look forward to this week every, every year and, and trust and pray that you will come join and support and be an encouragement and learn how you can better uh, pray for these people who serve in all sorts of different ways here in Holland and Zealand. So with that said, would you turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. This morning's message is about foundations. Now, if you're a builder here, you know something about construction. You know that whether you're building a house or a church or whatever structure you're building, if your foundation isn't well secured, um, you can have problems later down the road. Uh, Paul is going to continue in his, in his letter to this church that he loves, uh, bringing them back to what is foundational for their faith and their life in Christ. And so in Philippians chapter 1, for example, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Life is all about Christ for Paul. And he even says, and to die is gain, because there's no other life apart from the life we have in Christ. Paul is going to mince no words about his purpose and his direction on earth because he realizes that his life is not foremost about balancing budgets, raising kids, going to work, managing employees, um, going to school, or even being a pastor. Ouch, that one hurt a little bit. Life is more than that. His life is about knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And that's the truth that Paul is going to bring us back to today. But this pursuit does not come without challenge or adversity. So I want to even ask you a question as we begin today. Can you think of or think of a way or ways in which in your life you experience challenge or, your ad or adversity in your spiritual walk? What would that be? What is a way in which your spiritual walk is challenged or sometimes can be derailed? What are the things that can do that? 
as we study today, we're going to look at some areas where Paul cautions this church at Philippi to be on guard because he wants Jesus to remain the center of their life. All right, there we go. So if you, uh, hopefully you're there, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. And would you stand with me as we read the scripture this morning? Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, hear his word, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. God, by the work of your Holy Spirit, would you seal the truth from these words into our heart? May our desire today be for Christ, to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship with his sufferings. God, remind us again of your goodness and your grace as we learn and as we study for your honor and for your glory. And together we say, amen. Please be seated. All right, Paul's going to address several times within these verses what it means to truly know Christ. And because of our time this morning, I've divided them into four sections uh, of, of instruction. We could spend weeks here. We won't spend weeks here, but we could spend weeks here. So the first one is this. Paul begins chapter 3 by command, saying, Rejoice in the Lord. The rejoicing is a central command to Paul's teaching in all of the book of Philippians. And yet, in this verse, he takes it a little bit further. In chapter 1, he talks about rejoicing in the context of the gospel being furthered. He, he rejoices even amidst his own suffering, but here he directs, or he, he compounds the word with rejoicing um, with 
the Lord. He says, you don't rejoice in this, you don't rejoice in that, you don't rejoice in that. You rejoice first and foremost and always in the Lord. Now, um, this is a significant thing for us because it's a significant thing for Paul. Rejoicing is serious business. It's not something to be taken lightly or to go into without any thought. One of my favorite characters uh, from the Winnie the Pooh books, you, you saw my family up here, we love to read. We love to read Winnie the Pooh books sometimes. And one of my favorite characters is this guy named Eeyore. You guys know Eeyore, right? Oh, I love Eeyore. But Eeyore is a gloomy Gus. Eeyore um, is pessimistic. He always finds a reason to complain about his thistles being knocked over and all this kind of stuff. It's hard for Eeyore to find the joy in the day sometimes. He struggles to enjoy life. And, and that is something I think several of us can understand. Um, many of us here have tendencies to be like Eeyore. And one of the things pertinent to Paul's command is that rejoicing isn't found in whether your thistles get knocked over. It's found in God, in God's goodness to you. So as we think about Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord here, I want you to hear these scriptures. Psalm chapter 32 is a psalm that deals with forgiveness. And it says in verse 11, the last verse of the psalm, it says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In other words, in response to the forgiveness that we receive from God, what should our action or our attitude be? It should be rejoicing, thanking God for who he is, thanking God for what he has done in our lives. The very next verse, which goes into the next chapter, actually, which is a psalm that proclaims the steadfast love of the Lord, says this, Psalm 33, 1, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. And so we see, even briefly from these couple verses, rejoicing is something that we must intentionally be about. It can be really easy for us to say, yeah, I'll, I'll rejoice. And then we go on and we act like Eeyores the rest of the day. Paul, remember where he is at. He is in a Roman jail. <laughs> Roman jail, not, not even like the best of the best. I mean, he's, he's in a place of utter despair for most people. And yet, he says, rejoice in the Lord. I love the song that we sometimes sing. It says, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And there's a psalm that says, open my lips, Lord, that my mouth may declare your praise. When you find yourself, and when I find myself struggling to rejoice, Ask God to remind you for the reasons you have to rejoice. The rabbis of old, they would often say, find at least a hundred ways in which you can bless God today. And it's a good practice. Um, they would go around and they would, they would find all sorts of ways. They would say, blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, sovereign over all. We thank you and bless you for the gift of bread. We thank you, God, for the gift of being able to use the facilities. That's one of the blessings, the one of the rabbinic blessings. They'd find over 100 ways in which to bless God. And one way to encourage an attitude of rejoicing in your life is to actively seek to be thankful. 
as a precursor to warning people about trials, which is what Paul does in this passage. Paul is going to encourage his hearers to rejoice in the Lord so that even when they face people who oppose them and who try to teach them a doctrine that is not consistent with the Scripture, they can find joy in the Lord amidst all of these circumstances. So rejoicing isn't something that we always feel like doing, but it's a decision and an action that we can make today in response to who God is. All right, so rejoicing in the Lord. That's number one I want to talk about. Number two, we're going to talk about circumcision. All right, circumcision, a Jewish scholar noted, was a symbol of the Jews' consecration and commitment to a life lived in the consciousness of that covenant. All right, kind of an academic definition, but I want you to understand that for a Jew, it was an outward sign that they were living in covenant with God. We see this back in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. If we had time, we would go and we would study that more in depth. Um, but Paul is going to issue a warning in verse 2, and he's going to say, uh, be careful about false teachers. And these false teachers do not seem to have outrightly denied the messiahship of Jesus, but rather, as one commentator says, they, they have persuaded Paul's Gentile converts to complete their conversion to Christ by joining the Jewish people through the rite of circumcision and obedience of the law. In other words, instead of circumcision primarily signifying a repentant heart, they see it as an obligatory duty to maintain the covenant status with God. Thus, it became an integral matter with regard to one's sanctification, according to one scholar. Now, Paul is going to be refuting primarily those who would compel Christians, compel them to keep Jewish customs and worship practices according to the Torah. And he refers to them in three ways. He uses some very interesting language here. He says, look out for the dogs. You're like, dogs? Why not cats, if you happen to be a dog lover? Um, he says, look out for the evildoers. He says, look out for the mutilators, or those who, who mutilate the flesh. Now, dogs. Dog was a term of contempt, usually used by Jewish people to describe Gentiles. And so Paul is using a word that an observant Jew would likely have used for a Gentile to turn around and use and describe their own behavior. And a dog in that society was, was an animal that roamed. It was an animal that ate a lot of dead carcasses and all this kind of stuff. It, it wasn't highly thought of. Sorry to you dog owners. I don't have a pet, so I have nothing in the running this morning. But he calls them dogs, and then he calls them evil workers. How would you like to be called that? evil workers. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh, all right, or mutilators. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying that if circumcision, you, you highly value this act of circumcision, but if circumcision replaces or adds to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, then its value is utterly mutilation, all right? It's just a cutting of the skin, nothing more. And so he describes these false teachers, and then he goes to describe himself and the Philippian believers. He says, but it is we who have 
who are the true circumcision or who have experienced true circumcision. It's interesting, if you had time later this week, you could go look at circumcision in a more um, broad form. You could go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, for example, or Deuteronomy 30, or Jeremiah 4, or Ezekiel 44, all places that talk about the circumcision primarily being an attitude of the heart, though it is also an outward sign. So he says, but it's we who are the circumcision, the true circumcision, we who worship or serve within, with or in the Spirit of God. And it's we who glory in or who make our boast about God, not ourselves. And so he's going to remind them that their flesh is not something to bring pride, but instead they are to live dependent upon God because God alone justifies. God alone sanctifies. All right? So rejoicing in the Lord, circumcision. Number three, profit and loss. For the accountants in this room, this might hit a point or you might criticize my, um, uh, my, my, my math stuff here uh, or my profit loss here. Please be kind to me and... As last week said, don't grumble or argue, please. Uh, <laughs> that's been a very good message for everyone that I've talked to. So I'm grateful to the Lord. Prophet loss. Paul is going to further his point, and he's going to give us his personal pedigree. And it's as if Paul is saying, or it's as if Paul is drawing a ledger column, and he's thinking of all the things that could, that could be counted to his prophet. All right? Prophet loss. And he's going to list a bunch of things that could be put on this side. For example, um, and these are good spiritual things. These are things that people looked at and they said, wow, that's a marker of faithfulness and obedience to the God of Israel. So, for example, he says, I was circumcised. Circumcised. It's hard to talk and spell at the same time. Uh, circumcised on the eighth day. Okay? He says, circumcised on the eighth day. He has um, of, uh, of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. You can tell it's kind of just stacking up here. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. With regards to the law, he's a Pharisee. He is observant or obedient to all the commands. He, he's, he's blameless, some of your translations might use. And persecuting the church. Yeah, zealous for God's name. All right? He uses all these descriptors to think of ways or to enumerate ways in which he could be considered righteous. Circumcised, the eighth day, it shows that his parents were observant Jews. They, they mat it mattered when he was circumcised. He was an Israelite. He wasn't an Ishmaelite. He wasn't an Edomite. He wasn't a Canaanite. He was a full-blooded Israelite of the tribe or the people of God. He was a Benjamite. That was a very... Um, a very noteworthy tribe. The first king of Israel came from Benjamin. They took great pride in that. Zealous for God's name to the point that he would actually persecute those or he would try to stamp out anything that would come against the, 
the teaching of Judaism, all right? Uh, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, the strictest sect in terms of obedience to the Torah was the Pharisees, were the Pharisees. And so it was a big deal to be a Pharisee because it meant that you were scrupulous in how you obeyed the law. He was obedient. He was blameless. In other words, if someone were to look at his life, they would have said, wow, I cannot find it didn't mean he was perfect, but they said, I, I can't find anything that's you know, categorically wrong with him. He, he follows all the teachings of the Torah. He does all this, this, this. He goes above and beyond. Now, he takes all of these things and he stacks them up against what matters most in life. All these items, an observant Jew would find important. Paul says, all these things that were profit... They're really, they're really a loss. Now, he does not say that they are unimportant, but he says in the broad scheme of things, they're not what matters most of all. All right? I want you to think for a moment, what would you put in your own profits or your own gains list? All right? We'll write profit over here. Kids, on your sheet, I'd love to hear some of the thoughts you have. Uh, you can write them down. What would you put in things that would, you would consider a profit for your life? Here's some ideas for you to consider. What about your spiritual family heritage? The lineage from which you came. That could be considered a profit. Not necessarily a bad thing. I'm grateful that I was raised in a family of believers and came to know Jesus at a young age. But that's not my profit. It could be your denominational upbringing. It could be your acts of worship and service. Those are awesome. I'm glad you do them. But they're not what establishes who you are as God's child. It could be your memorization of Scripture. It could be your faithfulness and tithing. It could be your adherence to certain lifestyle standards in which you use to honor God could be your knowledge of theology. These are all good things, but when we establish our righteousness in them, that which was good becomes loss. Too often in our lives, we measure our faith by what we do for God and not by God's infinite mercy, grace, and forgiveness through the work of Jesus on the cross. We also do this to others. Sometimes we find ourselves, sometimes I find myself trying to measure people up by saying, well, they, they, yep, 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 yep. And I consider that a profit in their life. But Paul is saying here, he's saying all these things that I counted gain or actually scubalon. It's a Greek word that means dung or excrement, all right? All these things are to be considered as that because what is most important is what he says in verse 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, all these things that were gains, and it weren't necessarily bad things, all these gains I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
And he goes on in verse 8 to say, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I like what this, uh, what this, what the Expositor's Bible Commentary said. He said, faith is the very opposite of human works. He says, it is the reception of God's work by those who acknowledge the futility of their own efforts to attain righteousness. Paul's big point is that our lives are to be about God's glory, nothing less. What truly matters is knowing Christ. And so I want to ask you a question. How do you measure your life in view of God? What things do you consider to be profits, but they're actually losses? What degree of importance do you place on Christ? And as Paul says, which we'll look at in just a moment, knowing Christ. One of Paul's aims in writing these verses is to remind the believers of what truly matters. Now, there are two primary words in the Greek that are translated to know. The first one is the word oida. It means to know. It has the idea of data. The second word is the word that we find here, and it is the word gnosko. Can you say that with me? Gnosko. Yes, gnosko. And it means to know, to come to know, realize, learn in that cadence, because that's how I learned it uh, in school. To know, come to know, realize, learn. And it has the idea not of knowing knowledge about data. It has the idea of having a type of knowledge that is founded upon relationship, experience, and personal interaction. All right? Gnosko. Paul, the Pharisee, knew about God. He had studied the scripture. He had lived in accordance with the Torah. But on a road to Damascus one day in Acts chapter 9, Paul experiences the glory and the grace of the risen Lord. And he comes to faith in Jesus as a result of that experience and and begins a lifelong journey. For Paul, it was not sufficient to know about God. He had to know God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. Now, um, liken it to this. So my wife, Dawn, and I, we've been married since 2006. Yay! You don't need to clap. Um, But we started dating on November 17, 2000. Yes, I remember the date. It was a cold day in Ohio. Very, very cold day. Um, We started dating November 17, and after five-plus years of dating, we finally got married. Now, in those first five years, I got to know a lot about Dawn. I learned, for example, that she really, 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 really hates black olives. (laughs) Like, like, there's not many foods she doesn't like, but black olives she is absolutely out on every single time you would bring it up. So black olives are generally a no-go in our family, except for our daughter loves them. So we have this, like, this play that goes on now. Um, we also, I also learned that she, she does not like coffee, like, which it's like my lifeblood in terms of drinks. So, um... That's probably, to this day, the only thing I can find wrong with her. Uh, and, but, but she likes tea, so it's all good. Yes, I asked her if I could say that, by the way. Um, 
After 11 years of marriage, I know much more about her than whether she likes olives or coffee. And whether she, you know, likes hiking or ice cream or going out or anything like this. What we've learned in 15-ish years of dating and marriage is that our knowledge of each other keeps growing deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's because, in part, because as you experience things in life, you experience a move to a different state. You experience the birth of three wonderful kiddos. You experience the ups and downs of ministry and life. You experience the homegoings of grandparents. You experience all these mile markers along life. You get to know more about someone. It's this kind of knowledge Paul is talking about. He's not saying, I don't, I don't want to, he, he's saying, I don't want to just know about God and facts about God. I want to actually know God in a progressive, deepening way. There's a couple of things that, that knowledge of God is, is marked by in these passages. He says, number one, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. For Paul, the resurrection, as William Barclay says, was a dynamic power which operated in the life of the individual Christian. As Christians, we often live as though we have no power over sin and struggle and in our lives. And, and it's true, we don't have power, but Christ does. Paul speaks often about God's power. And really quickly, I want to read you a couple of examples. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 2 Thessalonians says this, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And then he goes to talk about how so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. God's resurrection power is limitless. Yet we often limit the working of his power by clinging to those things that we once thought were gains that are actually losses instead of the grace of God. In what ways do you limit the power of God in your life? Where do you cling on to things that are good? And I'm not saying don't, I'm not saying don't do those things. If they're commands of Scripture, of course do them. But where do you cling to them and you look to them for your righteousness instead of to God? Paul says, talks about the resurrection power, and then he says this. He says, I also want to share in his sufferings, that I may share in his sufferings. We struggle rightly so with suffering. And I want you to notice one verse of what Paul says about suffering. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort 
which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Time does not permit us to explore this much further, but I want to say that as we, as we and when we suffer as Christians, Paul counts it a privilege because he's reminded that in that suffering, God is present with him and God is his source of strength and his source of hope and his source of joy. So, as we close and as our worship team comes up, I'd like to ask you a couple questions. Do you know God? Or do you know about God? What's in your profit and loss? What do you consider a gain? That God might be saying, you know, that's a good thing. But that gain is really a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord. Years ago, I read a book uh, for a class I was taking on spiritual formation, and the, the, the premise of the book was, was knowing God. It was so, something like that. And one of the things that the author said was that more important than wanting to know God's will and God's plan for our life, when we seek to know God and rest in the knowledge of learning and growing in grace, all the other stuff, though important, becomes secondary. Do you know God? What's a, what is your greatest gain today? Can we pray? God, we are grateful to be your children. We're grateful, God, that we can, we can stand and we can sit, um, not just knowing about you, but, but truly coming into relationship with you. And I pray for anyone here who has not experienced the salvation that comes by grace through faith in Jesus, the risen Lord, would come to know and clearly understand that today. And that God, as we walk forward in faithful living, doing things that are important, we would be reminded the most important thing is to know Christ, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, and to find joy in this life today. And so we bless you, Lord God, King of the universe, sovereign over all, our God who gives good gifts, like air to breathe, like food on our table, like the gift of family and the gift of hope, the gift of purpose and meaning in life. It's to you we worship. It's you we worship, and it's to you we sing. And we again declare the praises of the one who has called us out from darkness into marvelous light. We give ourselves again to you today, God, for your kingdom purposes. We pray. In the name of Jesus, and together we say, amen. I'd like to invite you to stand as we close and as we sing. So grateful to have so many families here today celebrating parent-child dedications. Uh, so grateful to have each one of you here as we worship the Lord together. Um, 
We're going to have some uh, children's Sunday schools and adult Bible classes that happen the second hour. I invite you to attend any one of those that God might direct you towards. If you need questions about that, you can see our, uh, our welcome center out there. Let me, let me bless you as we go. God, we, we bless you and we thank you for the gift of one another. 